Hello. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Belonging Before Believing, the podcast where Nick is jacked up, and I am just a run-of-the-mill fella. I'm Patrick Mathers, pastor of Sovereign Joy Christian Fellowship in Chico, California, and the Grace Baptist Church in Orville, California, where we are currently recording. Nick's jacked up. And I am Nick Roberts, jacked up and member of Sovereign Joy Christian Fellowship. Why are you jacked up? I I don't know. Because you, the first few episodes we recorded, the sound was... Jacked up? Sloshy. It wasn't sloshy, it was... was quiet subdued because i talk you sounded like you were in an npr radio (laughs) program yes i am nick roberts well it was more like i start out talking and then i just kind of of wind chimes (laughs) in the sudan (laughs) all right pat who do we have with us today we have a guest oh it's our first guest well right you and i you guys we're not guests we're hosts no no no. it's a first guest you're my first guest i'm i'm done and then now we have a guest does that count? Yeah, that works, because I'm a co-host. Okay. Right. So we've got our buddy, our pal, the old-time farmer, Mike Willie. Mike, hey, introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Mike Willie. I am an elder at Sovereign Joy Christian Fellowship, <laughs> and I will eat the microphone so I don't sound like Nick in the first couple episodes that he was on here. Okay. Uh, I'm also uh, working agriculture, production agriculture, and our topic today is hopefully going to be something that you're going to introduce later. (laughs) And I have spent 15 years or so. Hey, don't take my thunder. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce this thing. All right, you've worked 15 years doing something, doing production agriculture in various capacities, and that will be helpful later. Work primarily in the seed production industry. Okay, I, I don't know anything about farming at all except that I dug a fence around our garden and put like chicken wire down like a foot and a half for them gophers don't come in there and eat them carrots like the old timey Looney Tunes because my wife didn't want that to happen. So that is the extent of my farming knowledge. So you've been in, first of all, what in the world is production farming and how does it differ from farming that produces but not in a large volume or something? I don't know. What does that mean, Mike? So you you have different kinds of agriculture. You have animal agriculture that focuses on growing animals and eggs and that kind of thing. And then there's production agriculture, which is focused on growing uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, different grain crops. Uh, really working the ground to produce uh, agricultural commodities. That's what I would say agriculture, production agriculture would be. It's sort of the big umbrella of uh, growing products to uh, give to consumers for them to eat. So is it about yield? That's the distinction? Well, one is dealing with plants and the other one's dealing with animals. Oh, got it. Or, okay. or you can have timber, you know, as another form of agriculture that wouldn't fall into like the production agricultural umbrella. Okay. So farming, how, when I think of farming, I naively think of like Paul Ingalls, right? On the little house in the prairie. And this guy's out there with a horse, maybe two. 
and there's like a bunch of straps and wooden stuff attached to some piece of metal that's digging the ground up, right? And then he's going to come by later on and he's going to throw some seed down in there and then I don't know what he's going to do after that, but I reckon he's going to get another implement that's going to put the dirt over them seeds and then just wait and hope it grows. I mean, there's always projects around the farm. So what you're doing, I mean, it's obviously just not just technologically advanced, but how is it the same and how is it different from that? So it it's not too much different than that. I mean, farming hasn't really changed in you know, 4,000 years from a really rudimentary perspective. You're going to save some seeds. You're going to put them in the ground. You're going to make sure that they have water, make sure that they have fertilizer, and then sort of watch, watch them grow, right? I mean, we see that uh, as being present for, for thousands and thousands of years. Now, the difference that we have uh, today is that we use a lot more machinery and there's a lot less people involved in agricultural versus uh, you know, even a hundred years ago. So a hundred years ago, you would have had to 60, 70% of the, uh, people involved in agriculture, whereas it's significantly less than that, probably between, you know, two to 4% of the people that are actually involved in, in producing food and bringing it to, uh, to consumers. So there's been a lot of advances in technology, um, from the materials that we're using, from the seeds that we're planting, from the machinery that's being used, um, and, and how people are really involved in that process. So, yeah. one thing you said at the very end was the differences in the seeds that we're planting. Yeah. So that is a segue to our topic of discussion today. Yeah, w well, we wanted to talk specifically about GMOs, which is genetically modified organisms? Organisms, or food. Right, or right. food, well, food, food is a GMO organism. food. Yeah, so genetically modified stuff is what we're interested in. So we, when we look at the Bible, uh, there's lots of farming illustrations, analogies, metaphors, I mean, the, and an actual farming that, that does take place. Um, so first of all, what I want to ask you, Mike, is to define GMO, because clearly me and Nick are ignorant <laughs> This, which We've been called uneducated before. Look, we're not opposed to talking about things we know nothing about. So um, I'm actually happy to talk about. Things oh, I, 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 I love it! About. I love it so much. But we got Mike, so why be ignorant when we can just say, "Hey, dude, who knows stuff?" Um, what is a GMO? As it pertains specifically to farming and what you're doing, and then from there. Um, when you look at the Bible, do we in any way, shape or form understand that there was genetic, uh, modification and stuff going on even in biblical days? So genetic modification is sort of a, a broad term and people would, would, yeah, people would define it, uh, a lot differently at different times, right? Some people try to come in and they'll define it, uh, from a, uh, oh, any any human intervention uh, of plants, um, whether that is biologically or sexually on that plant to produce a different outcome than what it was intended to do. So, you know, we would say that that there's a big process in in uh, developing different seeds that's we, we produce through natural breeding techniques, which is through the uh, the sexual transmission of uh, plant genetics to another. And this requires two con uh, sexually compatible species, right? So 
there are some people that will try to claim that sort of land on one far end of this spectrum when talking about genetic modification, that that is really us modifying the genetics by producing uh, through selected breeding to have the desired outcomes. But when we talk about from a legal perspective what a genetically modified organism, or in this case seed, what a genetically modified seed is, it's really the transmission of a genetic material or a gene to a plant uh, that are that's not sexually uh, compatible with each other, right? So you you think you can you can breed a donkey and a horse together and you get a mule. Well, those are two sexually compatible compatible species, so that's considered to be selective breeding and not really genetic modification. Genetic modification would be is if we could identify a gene from one plant and we wanna transfer that to another plant in order to have this uh, destination plant have the uh, desired outcome and the genetic material from this non-sexually uh, compatible species to the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, so I'm dumbing it down here, clearly. Please. What, <laughs> what I hear you saying is it's something like um, Jacob striping the poles and breeding stripy animals with spotty animals to get stripy spotties or solid animals, right? He's trying to g genetically modify the outcome. Or is it like taking uh, one plant and grafting in something else in order to get something else? Now, I know what you're talking about is like specifically as it relates to like viruses and bacteria and stuff. But um, just for simplicity's sake, is is that kind of what we're talking about just as a definition of genetically modified. So I would say that you're, you're correct from the Jacob perspective. So he would be naturally breeding. So selectively breeding a sexually compatible species with the same sexually compatible species, right? And so that would not be considered genetic modification. Grafting is not considered to be genetic modification because you are taking a plant that is um, compatible with another plant and bringing them two together. This is really taking uh, something entirely different. So taking a some genetic material, let's just say from a flower, and putting it into a grain crop to have a specific desired outcome in that grain crop, where the flower and the grain crop could never sexually um, uh, uh, breed with each other. Right. Gotcha. So yeah, the flower is immune to the Lichtenstein disease that's out in the field that your cucumbers are growing in. So you want to take whatever it is that keeps them immune from the Lichtenstein, I'm just making stuff up here, Lichtenstein disease, and then put it in the cucumber so that the cucumber now can grow in there. That's what I'm hearing you say then, right? That would be a really good analogy, Pat. I'm surprised that you came up with it. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> okay. Take that, Nick. <laughs> put that in your pipe and smoke it. Your genetically modified corn cob pipe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, some hostility from Pat. The question I have, so you have, the scenario is not genetically modified would be two sexually compatible animal or uh, plants. Yes. Okay. Can you give an example of how you would have two sexually compatible plants that would be different plants, different s strains of a plant species? How, how would you, like, what's an example of that? Yeah. So there, there's a lot of, the, a really good example of this is with tomatoes, right? I mean, we're, we're familiar with tomatoes. There's a lot of different kinds of tomatoes in the store. And so let's just say that we find, as Pat's example, 
um, sort of building off of that. We find a tomato uh, that's growing out in a field that's resistant to a virus. And so we want to breed that, that virus resistance into our target tomato that has the uh, physiological characteristics. So like the shape, the um, uh, color that, that our consumers want, but we want the, that tomato to have this virus resistance. We could, we could uh, breed it, breed that gen genetic resistance into that tomato plant through natural breeding techniques, and that is not considered to be okay, how genetic do you, modification legally. How do you breed it then? What, what, is, what does that mean to breed a plant with another plant? You, you take pollen from one plant and put it on the, uh, well, it would be the embryo or the female flower parts of the destination plant. Okay. And so you're, you're breeding it sort of like uh, our example with, with Jacob, he takes a, a male plant and he will breed it with a female, uh, or sorry, a male uh, uh, sheep. He's got, crazy. he's got, he's got, he's got a male sheep, and he's going to breed it with a female sheep, and to have the desired outcome, which is to have striped animals, right. so that he can build his herd and diminish the herd of his uh, father-in-law. So this right? breeding takes place on the field with people doing it, or in a lab, or do you just selectively plant them so they're next to each other? How do you, how do you get them to breed? So modern modern uh, techniques is going to happen in a greenhouse, okay. And we are going to use um, genetic uh, factors, right? So we're going to identify all the genetics in the target uh, genes in the plant that we're trying to breed in with the other one, and we're going to use marker assisted breeding to to determine you know the the course that we're going to take to take that genetic material and move it over into the target plant. Now th it's like a lot more messy than that because you inherit a lot of characteristics from the, uh, the, the plant with all the virus resistance into your target plant that you also have to deal with yeah. when you're doing natural breeding. And it takes a long time. It takes between 10 and 12 years to produce a, a viable hybrid or a viable plant with, uh, with those genetic, uh, okay. uh, things that we want to see. So is it take that long because the, your, the process of getting the genes, the pollen from one plant and putting it into the embryo, the, the, the female flower part of the other plant, that process is messy because you're pulling over not just what you want, but everything else along with that plant, right? Yes. So then you got to do that over and over and over until you get what you want? Yes. And you, and you have to deal with seed cycles. So plants don't just, you know, not like a bacteria where you can have multiple generations within a week. Hmm. With a plant, it takes, you know, 90 to 140 days sometimes in order to get a, a viable uh, offspring, some seed from that plant in order to, to plant in the greenhouse. Okay. Too. So in this sense, you're not actually selectively taking out genes from one plant, putting them in the X. You're just crossbreeding these plants that are of the uh, same sexual compatibility in order to bring those genes over. And then you're doing it selectively because you're doing it until you get the desired outcome you want. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Which would be uh, the, the virus resistance or right. fun fungus resistance or something. Yeah. Okay. Which kind of brings us to, you know, the thing we want to talk about and why this topic's so spicy is um, that, well, the one, there's a lot of ignorance, which is why we're asking a lot of uh, qualifying questions before we even get into it. But what we're doing is, I mean, in a sense, the argument is, well, aren't you playing God? And you're taking things from another animal, plant, organism, and forcing it into <coughs> something that is not naturally there. And if you're doing that, you don't know what the outcome is actually going to be. Yeah, you might get virus resistance, but with all of the other things that are being included as well don't you get like 
um, new allergies in people that come about? Don't you get new, like um, you, you might have some strain that is, is unedible because of, you just didn't know an outcome? So I, I, I think we still need to maybe roll it back a little bit when we're talking about genetic modification. So genetic modification would be to take a whole other um, set of genetic material from a sexually incompatible species. Right. So right. something that can't breed with this other, with this other organism and transfer that into the target organism. Right. And that's actually done through a biological process. So in, in biology, uh, bacteria and viruses can actually move genetic material from two sexually incompatible species. And so most of the genetic modification that actually happens in plant agriculture is using a bacterium in order to transfer the virus from one organism to the other one. So it, it's a biological process, but people consider that it's not a, uh, a natural process because it is, it is human intervention into it. So um, there, there's a, an instance, so probably the most popular um, gene that is put into plants in, in this uh, century over the last 20 years has been the Roundup resistance gene. Uh, that, glyphosate? Yes, gly glyphosate uh, Glyph resistance. So okay. you, you can put this gene into a plant, like a corn plant, and that plant will be resistant to an application of Roundup uh, herbicide, which is a non-selective herbicide, and Roundup won't kill it when you spray it on it. Now that gene came from a photosynthetic bacteria. What is interesting about photosynthetic bacteria is their um, photosensors and their photosynthetic uh, system is really similar to plants. And so, but it's not as complex as the plant, uh, like photoreceptors are. So where plants have like two different types of photoreceptors, the photosynthetic bacteria only has one. And so the reason that it works when you can take genes from a bacteria and put them into a plant is because the, the mechanisms by which uh, the photosynthetic bacteria is, is processing is really, really similar to, to plants. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about like, you know, kind of playing God, well, we're not really playing God. We're really just taking something that already will work because it was designed a certain way and putting it into the target that we're looking for, right? So just a qualifying question then. Um, can this happen naturally just over the course of a long, long, long period of time without any human intervention and we're just speeding the process up? Or is this something that wholly is human engineered? So we actually see in agriculture that when uh, you spray enough Roundup, you will have resistant species out there. So we have in, in this area of Northern California, we have a lot of Roundup resistant ryegrass. In fact, I have some at my home. There's some of the grass that I have that if I spray it with Roundup, it'll, it'll sort of ding it a little bit, but it won't kill it completely like it will with a lot of other plants. And so it does naturally occur. It's just that the reason that, they, that this has been termed genetic um, engineering is because we're sort of forcing the desired outcome through a way that uh, people, some people don't consider to be a natural means. I, I think it is considered to be a natural means, um, and, I, and I have some biblical maybe precedent to go into, but I want to make sure we cover all the questions and make sure that we cover all the ground on this topic before we get into it. So kind of like how we were discussing, or you were explaining earlier, how you can transmit genes from a sexually compatible plant to one that's to a, to the destination plant. How does that work 
how, how do you transfer the genes? If it, is it because it's not through pollen now, right? So how how is that transfer happening? So um, bacteria and viruses can transfer genetic material, as I mentioned earlier, from yeah. one from one from one species to another. Interspecies transfer, and so the the main mechanism is using a bacteria, and so you. You fill um, plants can can propagate asexually through by one plant cell. So unlike uh, animals, you could take one plant cell and you can propagate a whole nother plant from one plant cell. Uh, humans can't do that. We need an embryo and we need a uh, a, a sperm to do mm -hmm. that. And, and usually the genetic modification works around an existing embryo. But with plants, like I think a lot of people have probably done this, they've taken cuttings off of one plant mm -hmm. and they put a little rooting hormone on it and stuck it in some potting soil and you can grow a whole new plant from that cutting. Well, you can do that also on a cellular level. So you can take a Petri dish of plant cells and you can uh, put it in the presence of this agrobacterium and the desired uh, genetics that you want to be transferred and you can have a success rate where you're able to transfer that gene into those into those cells. How, how does how does that work in the petri dish? What what is what does that even so, mean? So the bacterium will uh, will allow that genetic material to be transferred to the the plant cells. How? Well, I mean that was probably somebody that's a little bit smarter, a genetic engineer maybe that has a better idea. Okay, how that so works. you yeah. you you put them in a petri dish. Yep. And they mix around and it transfers the genes. Yes. Okay. Basically. <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. Basically. <laughs> it's magic. <laughs> it feels like magic. It is. Do you do you have like wands and special incantations that you use? Oh, too they make? definitely have coats. Yeah. Robes. Oh, do yeah, you do have robes and <laughs> special hoods that you wear too. I'm sure he does. See, this is where we get into the devil stuff about this, right? Is it's witchcraft. Ooh. It's voodoo. That's what some people say about this stuff. But um, what I'm hearing you say is that, no, this isn't voodoo and witchcraft and demonic. What it actually is is, is something that just happens, can happen naturally. We have learned that we can take certain aspects and speed that process up or be extremely selective in what we do so we don't just get an amalgamation. I don't know if that's a word but of, of all kinds of different attributes and qualities in this new thing so that when humans are genetically modifying, we're being much more precise and specific in the ways that we're doing this so that we can produce a more robust and healthy crop, a better product that we're able to put out to the consumer. Um, is that, is, I mean, there's probably other benefits too that uh, you just haven't addressed yet. Um, but it sounds like that, especially on the commercial side of it, which you're a part of, that that's kind of, um, those are kind of the high points, yeah? Yeah, and, and I do want to make it, like you talk about me having this magic wand. Well, I'm not actually doing the genetic engineering. Sure. Somebody would have to be much smarter sure. than me doing the genetic engineering. Oh, I don't I'd buy be it. Someone like me doing the genetic engineering. I, I don't huh? buy that. Is that what? I don't buy that. Might buy it. Yeah. Trade yeah. Might buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not even on you anymore. <laughs> I'm not even. I, I'm going to focus on getting us back on topic, Pat. Um, <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. So it. Y yeah. So it it can happen much quicker. So I said that in in the course of uh, the the targeted breeding, right? The selective breeding, 
it can take 10 to 20 to 12 years. And, and it can actually take longer than that, depending on how messy, you know, the genetic uh, cycle does with, with breeding. Now with genetic modification, you, you can get it done really, really quick, quick. Cause after you develop the gene and have that set like this roundup resistant gene, uh, then you can put it into as many different hybrids as you want to. So you'll grow a certain hybrid of corn that fits really well in this spot in Iowa. Well, you can put this gene into that because you're going to flood this auger plate uh, full of, of thousands and thousands of, of cells of corn and then put this uh, genetic material in there. And you're going to have a lot more success than through the breeding technique. And then all you have to do is just you know, produce that hybrid, you know, multiple different generations in order to get it there. So you can, you can get a, a gene into a plant in three to five years versus the 10 to, to 12 years that it would take through natural breeding. So could you um, maybe ad address now the um, potential or alleged drawbacks, things like allergies that are produced that never existed before, um, issues like, you know, you don't know what ultimately is going to end up. I mean, yeah, you can kind of tell 12 generations down the road, but 12,000, you know, which we might even not even be alive then, or we might be, we don't know. It could all of a sudden now have an extremely detrimental outcome. Um, so, yeah, what I address those. So... <laughs> It, it's sort of a, a chicken and the egg scenario. So genetic modification came onto the scene at the time that like this understanding of allergies started to get uh, a little bit more prevalent in, in our society. In fact, people started to live in more sanitary conditions, which would make allergies a lot more um, prolific. And so the, the stance from most of the scientific community that tests genetic modification is that there are there's no difference between genetically modified food that's on the market now versus their non-genetically modified counterparts. That's from an allergy perspective, that's from a uh, health perspective, and that's from like a a like cancer perspective. So well, they it's all pretty new. It, it's it is pretty new, but genetically modified organisms have been around for almost 40 years. I mean, we started in the 80s genetically modifying organisms, and the first organisms uh, hit the market in the early 1990s. And so it's not something that hasn't been tested, uh, you know, readily tested. Genetically modified organisms are some of the most tested compounds in the world right now. So it's not for a lack of testing. But, you, you know, I wouldn't doubt that if we were pulling um, genes from like a peanut, which isn't happening, that you could possibly see, you know, allergies as a result of that. But again, that type of uh, genetic modification isn't happening because it's a known it's known that the proteins in peanuts can cause uh, allergies. So, <laughs> I, I want to try to draw a parallel: the original situation of similar sexual plants, prop or uh, crossbreeding through selective pollination to the female flower, right? And you can bring up, bring over a bunch of genes and you're hoping to bring over the select gene without all the other cross contamination. And you have to do that over the course of maybe a decade or so in order to finally get what you want. In the case of this other one where you don't have, when you don't have selectively compatible or similarly compatible, uh, plants, you're usually, you're using a plant and this virus or bacteria, right? And then the bacteria has obviously more genes than the one that's of 
of concern. So how, when you mix them all together, how do you know that the gene that you want gets in there and not all the other genes? And how do you know that the impact that all the other genes that may impact it are not having detrimental effects or unintended consequences? Yeah. So the um, known genetic material that you're trying to transfer, you know, you know those markers. And so you will genetically test all the plants that grow out of that auger plate. And then you'll screen them for whether or not the genetic modification was what was uh, accurate. Does the and virus only transmit that one gene or does it transmit more than just that? It, gene? It's only going to transmit the target genes because that's the only ones that you're really adding in at that time. So it, it's very um, selective on how the process works. And that's where um, there is the potential for allergies. I mean, there's a lot of potentials for allergies, uh, but there, there's no known way that the genetically modified genes, the genes that were that they're putting in to the plants are causing <laughs> the, you know, allergies in any way. Like there's people that are going to claim allergies and autism. But again, our understanding of allergies and like autism uh, have sort of came into mainstream and our understanding of those things have come into the mainstream during the same exact time that GMOs have come mm. into the mainstream. So we're classifying autism differently now than what we did in the 70s. And we're, we're classifying allergies now differently and, and how our understanding of allergies are different than they were in the 70s before we had GMOs. So mm. there's, no, there's no way to know if it's like the chicken or the egg that came first, right? It's, it's sort of all kind of coming out at the same time. And so it's difficult to tell, but they do testing on laboratory animals and they don't see, you know, any adverse effects from the genes that they're, that they're testing now. And it's, it's a robust process. It sure. takes a long time if you want to get a new gene approved through regulatory agencies in order to get that out and hundreds of millions of dollars and a lot of testing that has to go into it. So <clears throat> I don't know nothing about nothing really. Um, but it sounds like we kind of are doing this. We kind of don't know. We kind of think it's helpful and beneficial. We kind of don't know. It's almost like you're running down the hill. And at this point, well, we can't stop now because there's hundreds of millions of dollars in this thing. We just got to keep going and see where this takes us. Now, that might be an overly cynical way of looking at it. But um, it, it, it sounds a little bit like that. And I get the benefits from it. I'm totally uh, on on board and get, and get that. Uh, what I, I don't, and maybe it's just my own ignorance I don't get, is that how we're like, okay, well, this is going to be turn out fine. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's almost tough with anything, Pat, to know, you know, what the effects of, of something over the long term. Like we, you know, like a, asbestos, right, had came and they thought it was the best thing since sliced bread, right? Uh, and it turns out that it caused cancer. I think they were wrong on that one. They, they were very wrong on that. I would say the... Di it came out before sliced bread. It came out before <laughs> sliced bread. Yeah, it was created. Breathe it in. <laughs> sliced bread, this is as cool as asbestos. <laughs> I, I, I would say that uh, there's a lot more of a consensus and, and a lot more testing that happens with genetically modified organisms going into the food chain than... Uh, a lot of other processes. So they're tested a lot more than pharmaceutical drugs before they enter the food chain because you have a lot more people consuming those products than, than you do pharmaceutical drugs, right? Mm -hmm. You can exclude certain classes of people from the consumption of pharmaceutical drugs. You can't do that with food. 
And so the FDA, when before they'll give approval on a new gene, the reason it takes so long and costs so long to uh, deregulate a gene for genetic modification in the food system is because there's a lot of testing that happens. I mean, a lot of testing. I, I, it was 20 years uh, or so for, for the Roundup-resistant gene to enter the market. And it's about that same amount of time now. And it's not getting any easier because you have a lot of advocates that, uh, that are advocating for more regulation and more testing on, mm-hmm. on these organisms as they start to develop new, new um, organisms. And so it's actually I hampered the, uh, and, and made it less likely that companies get into genetically modifying things and using genetically modified techniques um, over natural breeding techniques. I think that it has negative aspects to it. And I think that from a theological perspective, it, it can actually be uh, sort of detrimental to, to us as humans and, and the role that, that God gave us here. So, um, talk about that. Ta- so yeah. I, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, God gives Adam a, a very clear directive. He said to, uh, to, to be fruitful and multiply— and to subdue the earth, mm-hmm. have dominion over it, mm-hmm. and, and that man would have div- dominion over all the birds of the air, all the animals on land, all the fish of the sea, and all the plants bearing seeds, right? And we don't typically give that language in Genesis chapter 1 the strong emphasis that I think God puts on it. We should. We should. I mean, he says to subdue the earth. And so you can think before the fall, earth was created that man was going to have to work and tend it, in order for it to, to ultimately be the thing that God wants it to be, right? Man has a role in this created earth to subdue it, to have mastery over it and have dominion over it, and that that land will work for man, not man working for the earth. Right. And then when we get to Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, that doesn't change. It, it actually says that it's just going to get a lot harder, right? So to be fruitful and multiply is going to be harder, because it's going to cause women to have pain during childbearing. It's also, uh, there's going to, it says that uh, the, the weeds are going to be in, in the field. There's going to be pestilence in the fields, and that Adam is going to have to work really hard. He's going to have the sweat of his brow that it would take to, to eat bread, right? And so we have this uh, directive from God to be the masters of the earth. And I think that G- Jesus sort of reiterates this in John chapter 10 when he says, uh, doesn't it say in your law, talking to the Pharisees, that you are gods, little g gods? And he's quoting uh, Psalm 82, and he, he is saying that he has given man the ability to, to act as judge on this earth. He gave it to the judges, and he gave it to man to be the masters, the little g gods of this earth, so that the earth would uh, be subservient to men. And so people, I believe, um, have followed after this sort of first directive that God gave them, you know, even after the fall, uh, as a desire to understand biological processes, to understand the systems by which the, uh, we, we produce food, how cells work, and we were able to develop this process to really have some mastery, more mastery than we did 100 years ago, over plants and animals so that we can fulfill this uh, command by God. Yeah, and I, yeah, on all that I think is um, the correct way to understand those texts in light of what we're talking about. They obviously speak to much more than 
what we're talking about. But I mean, it's quite clear that we're supposed to take dominion over the um, animals, the plants, and the fall uh, gives us a lot of problems in that area. So um, for sure that that is part of the dominion mandate. We would um, celebrate the fact that we can uh, do things with this genetic modification that is going to, in the long run, hopefully, we fingers crossed probably, not that we're superstitious, but um, be able to help hunger in places that are just extremely impoverished. I mean, you talk about all of this beginning in the 80s and coming to fruition in the 90s, and I remember in the 80s all kinds of ads on TV about starving children all over the world, and not that there aren't starving children now, but it's certainly different now. Um, and that probably comes in large part to our ability to produce and to ship food to people. And we would uh, agree, I think, that this is an act of common grace that we're extremely grateful for. Because even though there are people who are playing little G-God, uh, a lot of them think they're big G-Gods. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're grateful that there are guys like you in the industry who understand those theological parameters. And yeah, you are indeed taking dominion over uh, the culture, I mean, not the culture, the um, the ground, so that we can have these uh, common grace blessings uh, throughout the world. As a Christian, not just as a common grace blessing, do you see there being any other advantage? Is this a, a small little hint of uh, redemption of creation like we find in Romans 8, or are those two completely different categories? That's something I read earlier this week about somebody who was talking about this. So there's many other things that we can talk about. I I think that to see uh, people's pain alleviated in different parts of the world, um, one of the things that I I wanted to talk about, I think we have some time to talk about it, is uh, probably one of the successes of genetic modification and showing more of the compassionate side of the potential that it has there's a product um, that's been that was has been in development since the 80s called Golden Rice, and it was to solve a vitamin A deficiency uh, in a lot of developing countries, uh, a lot of countries that their main staple is rice, and so they're not taking in enough vitamin A, and kids are actually going blind because they don't have uh, this vitamin A in order for their eyes to fully develop, and so they live their whole life as as being blind, right? Mm. And so there was the Rockefeller Foundation set out to develop a, a variety of rice uh, that had beta carotene in it. So they actually took a gene out of a flower and they put it into rice. And over the course of, of the last 30 to 40 years, they've developed a rice variety called golden rice that was able to, um, sorry, that was able to have enough uh, beta carotene in it to, to be able to supplement the diets of, of people in, in uh, developing countries that wouldn't have access to supplements or uh, carrots or other uh, things that have the vitamin A in it. And so this was all done like it was a, a coordination between, it was started by the Rockefeller Foundation, governments were involved in it, but also companies. So actually a company called Syngenta uh, actually accelerated like 20 times the amount of beta carotene through their uh, staff to be able to get the, the beta carotene levels high enough to have enough supplementation for for when kids consume it almost for every meal that they would be getting enough vitamin A that they wouldn't go blind. And so uh, this is actually sort of one of those things that I think in in Romans chapter 8 where uh, the creation longs, right? So uh, a lot of the answers are out there. 
like a lot of the answers to solving some hunger problems are there in some form, either in a non-sexually uh, compatible plant that can be taken out through genetic modification and put in. But I think that the pieces are all there, right? So I think God has the pieces all there. It's just our job to uh, have dominion over those pieces and sort of put them together to, to solve the problem. And it's not without um, issues, right? So, uh, you know, uh, I, I had to take antibiotics at the end of November, uh, antibiotics and a steroid because I had an ear infection, right? Taking that steroid and those antibiotics didn't come without side effects, right? But the side effects were, were, were minimal compared to the result of, of taking care of the ear infection, right? The, the steroid had me, uh, I gained a little bit of weight because of the, um, the uh, electrolyte imbalances that that steroid can cause, and so that goes away over time. When, when we do intervention po uh, practices in agriculture, whether it's spraying a pesticide or a herbicide or a fungicide to mitigate an issue in the field, there, there are potential side effects to that. But it's similar to a doctor prescribing a medication. Uh, the, side, the side effects or the potential for those side effects are outweighed by the benefits of the action that is taken. And so there, there are almost certainly going to be side effects of using genetic, mo genetic modification. But it's our, it's our um, job as having mastery and dominion over the earth to figure out what those are, number one and then uh, determine if the benefits outweigh uh, the side effects that happen. Yeah, so you would say that it's a knee-jerk reaction up on the part of whoever to say, oh, well, if there are side effects, we shouldn't do it at all. It should just be all natural, only organic, <clears throat> only organic, nothing, no genetically, no nothing. And um, well, you're, what we're doing there is we're denying the dominion mandate, um, which is odd because they're wanting to go back to the very thing the Dominion Mandate calls us to do, which is farm and to, mm -hmm. to you know, they just want to do it in a more, uh, to bring it full circle, little house in the prairie kind of way. Um, when in reality, what we're doing is, is we're taking the commandment of God seriously. Well, you and I are. I mean, I'm not a farmer, but, um, and I'm not sure all the GMO scientists out there are, but we're taking um, those things and taking dominion over the w world and trying to produce something that is going to benefit mankind uh, for the better. And that's something that we should appreciate and be glad about. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, just a, kind of a last quip here for me. Uh, organic farming is not without side effects as well, right? So it's not like organic farming has this golden halo over the top and, and there's no uh, side effects to the practices of organic farming. There, there are side effects to, to the effects uh, or to the practices of organic farming. Um, organic farmers utilize pesticides, just like conventional farmers, but it's a certain uh, how those pesticides were developed will determine uh, whether or not they can be used in agricultural systems. And there are some uh, fun fungicides, for instance, like copper. Uh, there are some copper formulations of fungicides that are um, available to use in organic systems. Well, these copper formulations of fungicides can have respiratory effects on the applicator, you know, similar to, to other uh, fungicides or other pesticides that conventional farmers use. But then again, there are some fungicides that conventional farmers use that don't have those sa same side effects or negative aspects to them. So um, there, every, I don't know that there's any silver bullet on, on hey, this isn't going to have any 
uh, undesirable outcomes if it if it's executed. There, there's always going to be some sort of um, side effect to anything that happens, but we have to determine what the best course of action is to, to sort of have the best benefit for mankind, I think. Well, I'll tell you what the silver bullet is, Mike, because uh, it's Jesus. <laughs> he's going to come back and he's going to set everything right. He's going to take this world and he's going to turn it right side up. And so with that in mind, you're right. On this side of that event, we want to do the best we can be the most responsible we can, doing the most good we can for all of society. And this certainly sounds like something that is not only uh, reasonable and wise, but I mean, of course, there's always going to be abuses of this kind of stuff, which is where those accusations of like witchcraft and demonic and, you know, the, the most outlandish, you know, objections out there. But the reality is, is that one day this will all be righted. And there is one time where we're going to look back on this, um, not with fondness, but with a sense of gratitude that Christ redeemed all of this, including all of creation. And we look forward to that day and say with John, Maranatha, right? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But during that time, before he comes again, um, yeah, we want to be the best stewards of what we have. And that includes taking dominion over the crops that we produce and the animals that we're going to use for our own benefit so nick you got a last word there buddy i got a pal hot take friend on i might not call you that after this then no it's not it'll offend other people not you oh do it do it do it i know even if it offends so i was trying to prepare for this Uh podcast a little bit Uh i listened to half of two podcasts oh well done podcast it's more than i listened to one was of these pediatrician physicians and they were talking about gmos and apparently some sort of like aap or something like pediatrician group put out this publication that GMOs are bad. And so they were categorically bad. It wasn't like categorically, but it was very, very heavily swayed to one side. And so they were all upset about it because a lot of people are just like, they have a kid. They don't like you, Mike. They're not, uh, they're not feeding their kid because they can't afford non GMO foods. And so Mm. they would rather just, uh, anyways, but then I listened to another guy and he was talking about how bad, um, genetically modified foods are. And so we started like listing off the GMO foods, and like all the main ones he listed off were canola oil or canola, um, uh, soy beans and something else. Right. I, I forgot what it was, but it was like a rapeseed. And it, so then this quick question for Mike is the extent or percentage of GMO foods that are out there or the amount of funding for those GMO foods are a majority of them for things like corn, soy, um, rapeseeds. Yeah, so the the big four um, genetically modified organisms are corn, soybeans, cotton, and canola. Ah, Yes, cotton, that was it. Um, Very little vegetables are genetically modified. As I mentioned, there is genetically modified rice. It's primarily just the golden rice. uh, And it does have approval in the U.S., but I doubt that you'd ever see it because we have other forms of of beta carotene. It's mainly for... um, developing countries that don't have access to that, uh, that have access to beta carotene or or vitamin A. Um, There are squash that are genetically modified. There are papayas that are genetically modified. Um, And sweet corn that is genetically modified has the same genetic modification that a lot of the the grain corn has. But the bulk of the uh, what is your hot take? <laughs> no, the okay. bulk the bulk of the foods that you're going to go see at the grocery store that are non-processed um, foods, mm-hmm. 
probably are not going to be GMO. Like I see packages of walnuts sometimes at Costco that say a part of the non-GMO uh, process or project. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. no wal- genetically modified walnuts. <laughs> Obviously, it, it's yeah. Not. <laughs> yeah. There's no, or no no almonds that are genetically yeah. modified, right? It's like saying corn tortillas yeah. are gluten free. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. The corn gave that away to me. So here's here's my my thought. I was listening to this podcast with this guy, and he was going off about how bad GMOs are. And he started listing off, you know, the canola, the cotton, the rapeseeds, and the uh, soy or whatever. And all the tests that have been done to show how harmful they are to animals or to humans and whatnot. And like the first thing that came to my head is like, well, if you're testing the consumption of soybean oil or canola oil, the detrimental effects is probably due to them eating that, not the fact that it's a GMO. Is, is my initial thought. And so everyone's fear of GMOs, in my mind, right? This is just my ignorant mind. But a lot of people's fear of GMOs, I think, should be, just be attributed to the fact that it's for these lobbied uh, crops that are part of the processed food industry that everyone just consumes so much of when they should rather be eating meat or vegetables and fruits and not grains like, um, uh, or sorry, seed oils and grains of that stuff, of that nature. That's my thought. I mean, that's that's a good hot take. Um, <laughs> so I, I would say as, as, many, uh, as many scientific studies out there that show negative health effects from the consumption of GMOs for people, there are 10 times uh, the studies out there that show that they're, that they're no different, right? And so that's why sort of agencies have taken that approach. It's not just the one government agency like the FDA that takes that approach. A lot of uh, different governments across the world uh, take that approach, as well as most scientists agree that genetically modified foods are no different than conventional foods. And so really, like, look into the studies. Like, don't just let somebody like me or Nick and his crazy ideas, like, get you going one way. You got to look at the studies and the methods, right, uh, that that will convince people uh what the actual effects are i got another hot take yeah i do too oh i'm not the crazy one anymore nick's crazy nick (laughs) (laughs) oh uh i don't trust what the government has to say or what the institutions of the government have to say or what the scientific academia has to say that sounds like an episode i do not or five they say anyways we're gonna get there we will. We will. We've got a couple in queue that will address the very topic, Nick. We got to wrap this up, though. It's getting spicy. long. Spicy. Yeah, and Mike doesn't know when to quit. His passion just comes out. GMO, capital GMO. My good Mike uh, friend. <laughs> you got it I there. I can't think man. of anything <laughs> with O real quick. Oh, man. Okay. Oh, there it is. Oh, man. Good Mike. Oh, man. <laughs> G-M-O-M Go mom Anyways Mike Thank you for coming on today And enlightening us And sharing with us About GMOs Because we believe Mike That you belong <laughs> <laughs>